0: In my parents' house, um, when I was growing up, and I I believe it's still there where they live now, was a uh, clock with a really loud chime. Uh, If you've ever been to John and Janine's house, kind of like theirs, Uh, but I remember my mom's clock. It was my mom's clock, Uh, is my mom's, even though it's at my mom and dad's house. (laughs) Uh, It was just so loud. And it was in the room where we watched TV, and it was real close to where uh, you sit to watch TV. It's just like right here. And my parents like to set the clocks in their house five to 10 minutes ahead, which means that uh, as you sit to watch a TV show, uh, especially if you're watching an hour long drama that runs from the turn of the hour to the turn of the hour, Uh, Just as the show is reaching its climax, just as all the little storylines are coming together in in the crisis moment that has to be resolved, uh, at that time, when you really need to hear what people are saying, all of a sudden it was bong, 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 bong. And it was set to where it would, after it did like the song, it would hit the bell as many times as what time it was. So especially if you're watching, you know, me and my mom used to like to watch Law and Order. That's a show that definitely comes together in the last seven minutes. Just as things are coming together, you would hear, bong, bong, and then it would like ring out like nine times because it's almost nine o'clock at night. When we finally got uh, the kind of TV that you could pause, it was the greatest thing ever. Because when the clock went off, it became sort of like, we would pause it, but it became sort of like this signal. Uh, The clock goes off, rings, you know, seven, eight, nine times. We pause the TV and wait. But it became sort of like this call of, hey, everybody, this is the moment to really pay attention to the show. Uh, So if you needed to get, you know, more popcorn or, you know, use the restroom, that was the time because the next five to ten minutes of the show you you want to really tune in we've been in this series uh, going through Abraham's life and it's been about almost five months now through his life episode by episode and this passage that we have today Genesis 22 this is the climax of his whole story so right now my here I want to be that clock in my parents house to you guys and say, "Hey, everybody! This is the moment. This is the time when the whole story is going to come together. Uh, the next uh, 25 minutes, Lord willing, <laughs> the next this is this is it. Really pay attention. This is the big part of the story. So there you go. There's your warning that this is this is the part. This is when his whole story comes together. And if you miss this," If you miss the meaning of Genesis 22, then you miss the meaning of Abraham's life. So uh, if you would, open your Bible to Genesis 22 or your worship guide or your Bible app. Uh, I forgot last week to have a stand to read for the reading of the word, so I, I don't forget this week. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Okay, here we go. saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering, instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide as it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord it shall be provided and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and he said by myself I have sworn declares the Lord because you have done this and you have not withheld your son your only son I will surely bless you I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose, and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba, now, after these things, it was told to Abraham Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Azo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rayuma, Bortiba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Wow. Pretty intense. You notice how the author has crafted the story almost in slow motion? It's like. Uh, He's trying to get to draw us into this moment. And Abraham saw the place from afar and he approached it and he laid the wood on the boy and they went up to the place and then he built the altar. Then he laid the wood in order. Then he reached out his hand. Then he took the knife. It's, the tension is so thick. Also, the action is so awkward. We read this story, we can't help but be drawn in because the way that it's written, this climactic tense uh, picture of here's Abraham. He's over a hundred years old. He's waited his whole life for a child. He's already lost his other boy. God has promised him land, offspring, and blessing. And Isaac is all he has. Isaac is everything. And then God says, Abraham, take the boy, put him on the altar. An offering, a sacrifice. Now, if anyone here in our church came to me or uh the the other elders or or really anyone and said hey you know uh i i really believe that god told me to take my child and offer them up as a burnt offering we would say oh i'll tell you what hold on right there don't move and we I, i would walk away i would call the police They would come, and I would go back to the person and say, why don't you sit with me for a moment? Let's just sit here for a second while we waited for the police to come. Wouldn't we? This is terribly awkward. Why in the world would God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac? Never mind the whole child of promise thing. Just the fact that God would tell someone that belonged to him, that was trying to live righteously, walk before me and be blameless, Abraham, why would God say, take your son, your only son, and put him to death? That question dominates the reading of this text in our minds. Why in the world? Now, Every week in this series we've come and asked the question, who is Abraham's God in this passage? Who does God show himself to be? And one of the things that we've learned as we've studied Abraham's life is that if we can figure out who God shows himself to be in the passage, then we can figure out the meaning of the passage for us today. Especially the passages where a name for God is given, that name every single time, becomes the key to unlock the meaning. And here in this passage, an, a name for God is mentioned. Abraham uses one of God's names to name the mountaintop where he was there with Isaac. The name is, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, that's Yahweh Yirah. Or, if you are a fan of 90s uh, contemporary Christian music, Jehovah Jireh either one works Uh, Yahweh Yerah Jehovah Jireh the Lord will provide so we can know in this passage as we seek to figure out why in the world God would do this to Abraham and why in the world God would do this to Isaac talk about something that you're gonna need counseling for later why would God do this well we can know that the answer lies in God's identity as a provider What God is doing here on Mount Moriah is providing Abraham and Isaac with something very, very important, actually providing three things. The text gives us three things that God provides for Abraham. So let's go through, I want to show you these three things that God provides. And then I think once we get there, the meaning of all of this for us today hopefully will be obvious, and then we can spend a moment worshiping God and the glory of his message here for us, and then we'll pray and, and keep worshiping, okay? So first thing that God provides for Abraham and Isaac uh, here in this passage, Yahweh Yirah this is what God's providing. First thing, God provides a test God provides a test. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said, Abraham, here am I. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. God provides a test. Abraham, I have a test for you. Here's the test. Take your son, your only son, and offer him up on the mountain where I will show you. Uh, just the language there, again, this is brilliantly crafted in a literary sense. The last time God said to the land I will show you was when he called Abraham out of Babylon, remember that, and called him to Canaan. That's the beginning of his story. Now here at the end, Abraham, to the land I will show you, and I have a test. I have a test for you. Now, in the Bible, when we read about tests that come from God, it's not like the same thing as like the kind of test you would take in school. It's like, it's more like a trial. Um, challenge where something is proven or something is discovered and in the Bible these tests are things that worry us God's people are supposed to celebrate I think about in James chapter 1 where it says count it all joy my brothers and sisters when you meet tests and trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect complete lacking in nothing God provides for Abraham a test a trial a moment where something can be proven something can be uncovered now what is that thing well I believe it was faith what God was trying to test Abraham for to check for Like what you do in high school when you take those little strips and you dip them in the water or whatever, and they change colors to like test the chemical, I didn't do very well in science, alkaline, whatever. It's a test. We're going to put you through this, and we're going to see what rises to the top. And that thing is faith. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly here in this passage, but it does say later in the book of Hebrews it says by faith Abraham was tested and he offered up Isaac so we know from the author of Hebrews that faith was the thing that God was looking for faith was the thing that they were testing for now faith we often think of faith as a kind of spiritual muscle right and it's something that we need to work out Uh, And really good Christians have really big, strong spiritual muscles. They have great faith. They they have really built up their faith. They have way more faith than I do. uh, And they are strong in their walk with God because they have strong faith. Right? And maybe weak Christians, well, they just don't have enough faith. They need to work out their faith. We tend to think of faith that way. Now, sometimes... That's a helpful metaphor, but actually very rarely. The Bible doesn't really, maybe once or twice, but overall, overwhelmingly doesn't speak about faith like that at all. Faith in the Bible is not a spiritual muscle. Faith is not really something that we uh, exert energy to do. Faith in the Bible, well, in Hebrews, again, Hebrews 11, it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Assurance. When you have assurance of something, that means you have received it, it belongs to you, it's in your possession. And when you have conviction about something, that means you're resting in your belief about that thing. So in the book of Hebrews, it says faith is uh, assurance of what's hoped for and conviction of what's unseen. Now, the framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, and and the catechisms that go with it, which are documents that we use as a church to help us interpret our Bibles well, They took a hold of that idea. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we have this question, which is, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer to the question, which helps us understand our Bibles, is that faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. What is faith? What is faith in Jesus? Well, it's receiving assurance, and it's resting conviction. And the truth that Jesus offered in the gospel can save us. So let's go back to Abraham. God is testing Abraham's faith. Well, I used to think for years that the way that that worked out is here in this passage, we have God asking Abraham to do something really difficult so that Abraham would muster up the strength and do it and it would, you know, work out his faith so that afterwards he would be stronger. And that's not it at all. God is testing for Abraham's faith because God wants to see and God wants Abraham to see where his assurance is being received and where his conviction is being laid down. In other words, maybe you've seen this object lesson. I'm not a big object lesson guy in sermons, but we've done the picture thing, so I thought I'd try this because this is a really good one. Maybe you've seen this before. It's a stool. Just in case you can't see it, there's a stool here. And there's a classic metaphor about faith that we can use a stool or a chair for and I can if I'm tired and I need to sit down I can come up to this stool and I can look at it I could walk around it I can analyze it Um, I could I could think on it but I'm not really doing anything productive until I rest in the stool and receive it as my sitting place. Right? Every time we sit in chairs or stools, we are exercising faith. Do you want to know what faith looks like? It looks like this. And sometimes in our life, it's so easy to take our receiving and resting our assurance and our conviction away from this action and try to get it on our own without the solid thing that faith is supposed to rest on. What would happen if I tried to sit here? I'm not going to do it because that would be ridiculous and I'd hurt myself. I would fall, right? Faith has to have an object. Faith has to have something solid in order to be placed on, in order for the action to take place upon. Now, back to Abraham. Abraham, thus far, God has been teaching him to rest his faith on God's promise. God's promise for land, offspring, and blessing, which in one sense, means taking a hold of Canaan, having a son, and being a good neighbor. But in a greater sense, we've learned, it means that God is going to renew the whole world, break the curse and renew the whole world. God is going to raise up a nation of holy people, and God is going to use that nation in order to um, bring blessing and joy. Thus far in Abraham's story, God has been teaching him, rest your faith here on this promise. And once Abraham had a son, now he had a flesh and bone picture, embodiment, reminder of God's promise. But Isaac himself, the actual person, was not God's promise. God's promise was bigger than Isaac. Isaac was just a tangible, down payment, if you will. He's one link in the chain that would eventually lead to Jesus, that eventually leads to a renewal of all things and a new people to live forever in eternity with God in a new world, right? Isaac himself is not the thing that Abraham should put his faith upon. The promise is. Now, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. After being over a hundred years old and all the stuff he's lived through and losing his other boy how tempted would you be to put your faith away from the promise that you can't see and try to rest the whole thing on the shoulders of this little teenage adolescent young man i know i would do it do you know why i know that i would do that Because that's the kind of thing I do in my own life. And I'm willing to bet it's the kind of thing that maybe you struggle with too. It's so easy to take uh, our hopes for redemption, our hope for renewal, our hope for the growth of God's kingdom. And take them off of Jesus and put them on the little pictures that we have in our life. I want to put my faith in the fact that our church is wonderful and it's going to grow. And that's how God's going to change Portland because we got Hope Presbyterian and some other churches and we're really going to do it. You see what I've done? I've taken my faith off of Jesus and I put it on the thing that's supposed to look like Jesus but isn't the same as him. So God tells Abraham, put the boy on the altar. I want to see where your faith is. Now, by God's grace, Abraham passed this test. It says in the text afterwards, God says, now I know that you fear God. And the implication is he's telling Abraham, now you can know where your faith rests. God provided that test. It was hard, it hurt, it was scary, but it was God's beautiful grace in Abraham's life. Okay, that's number one, God provides a test. Number two, God provided a blessing. You say, "Wait, Charlie! I, I thought this whole time God's been providing a blessing." Well, yeah, this whole time God's been promising a blessing, and we've seen little pop-ups of blessing here and there. But listen to the language here, uh, verse fifteen, and this is this is after um, after the whole thing, the 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 stopping and the and the ram and the whole thing it says in verse 15 the angel of the lord called to abraham a second time from heaven and said by myself i have sworn declares the lord because you have done this and not withheld your son your only son i will surely bless you and listen to how he god uh, reiterates that land offspring blessing thing I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in all your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's interesting that God has been promising land, offspring, blessing in its smaller, more immediate sense, and also in the grand redemptive sense to Abraham this whole time. But after this moment, at the end of his life, God says, Because you have done this, now I'm going to give it to you. Now, I used to think for years um, that what that meant, because you have done this, is that somehow Abraham earned it, he passed the test. He, uh, like a, it's like a, like a driving test. Oh, I passed it. Now I give me my driver's license. Or maybe since we're talked about faith as working out that spiritual muscle. Maybe this is like a, like a, like a, like a competitive uh, weightlifting competition. And Abraham, he's working on his faith and now he exercises great faith and he wins the competition and gets the medal, the blessing. That's not it at all. When God says, because you have done this, now I'm going to bless you. He's not telling Abraham, because you earned it, I'm going to give it to you. No, that's not it at all. We have watched Abraham, starting five months ago, in almost every episode of his life, try to take a hold of God's promises out of his own power, right? He tried to take a hold of God's promises by lying to Pharaoh, taking the money, selling out his wife. He tried to take a hold of God's promises by going to war with the surrounding nations. He tried to take a hold of God's promises by keeping his nephew Lot around when Lot wasn't supposed to be there. He tried to take a hold of God's promises in his own power by having a kid with Hagar. And on and on and on, we have seen Abraham put forth his own effort according to his own plans, according to his own brain. Following the direction of his own sinful heart to make God's promise happen for himself. But here in this passage, finally, we see Abraham stop acting out his own ideas and simply do what God tells him to do. It's not that Abraham passed the competition and earned the blessing, it's that Abraham actually stopped competing. He stopped trying to do it on his own. God says, put the boy on the altar, and he says, okay. Lord, I'll do it. As crazy and as messed up as that is, I have learned. I can't make this happen on my own. Your way, not my way. And God says, because you have done this, now I'm going to bless you. Now I don't know about you but in my own life there are all kinds of things that God has promised to us as his people in the new world things like freedom that we've talked about through the series like freedom from sin and shame things like abundant full life in Ephesians it says that Jesus has blessed us with every spiritual blessing so things like flourishing and even as he's promised us resurrection. Things like one day, however he delivers it, healing from our sicknesses and our hurts. God has promised us so much, and I know my own life. I spend so much time trying to take a hold of those things myself without God. Not following his law, not looking to Jesus, but going out there and trying to get Charlie's best life now for Charlie out of Charlie's own power have you ever done something like that? I'm willing to bet you have and maybe something's coming to mind right now When Abraham finally stops Puts the boy on the altar all of his hopes all of his dreams all of his efforts he's it's like he says God It's like Jesus said, not my will, but yours. God provided that for Abraham. And that was a work of God's saving grace in his life. Okay, Charlie, we're running out of time, so let's keep it moving. Okay. Uh, He provided a test. He provided a blessing. And last, and this is the moment, he provided a substitute. Look at verse 13. This is like, this is like one of the greatest verses in the whole book of Genesis. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, he didn't see it coming, was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, I didn't know this. We lived on a farm for a little while when I was a kid, but I didn't pay attention apparently. I thought a ram was like some kind of like, more like a, like a mountain goat than a sheep. Turns out that's completely wrong. Did you know that a ram is a sheep? I just learned that. It's a male sheep. Um, if you're a Bible reader, all the bells should be going off here, right? God provided this ram as a substitute. But before we jump to the whole, like, lamb on the altarpiece, that's important. Uh, There's something else here that we can't miss. God called Abraham to be the leader, the first generation, uh, the family uh, dad of a new humanity, offspring, to live in a new kind of world that God's renewing land, in order to participate in God's full redemption, blessing. Abraham was a kind of, especially if we start Genesis at the beginning in chapter 1, once we get here to chapter 22, we start to see Abraham as a new Adam. God had taken ahead of a new family, a new humanity. He put him in a garden and he said, look, here's the thing, I want you to cultivate to protect, to rule over, to father this land. And God promised that if Adam would do these things, God would renew the world, and it would be filled with a new people, and it would be a place where everyone had joy and love when we experienced God. But Adam decided not to follow God's rules there, and do it God's way, Adam decided to do it his way, and he uh, tried to cultivate and rule and father uh, and protect the land by eating the forbidden fruit, right? So that's in our heads when we read this, but when, when we get to Abraham, oh, and, and remember what the result of that was? It was don't eat of the fruit, don't disobey my rules, uh, if you don't pass this test, Adam, uh, you will die, death, right? And Adam does the thing, and the next chapters, right after Genesis 3, we see genealogies of death, 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 death. And Adam is barred from the tree of life. And it's out of that rubble that God calls Abraham to be this new humanity, right? Well, by the time Abraham gets here, at the end of the test that has to do with uh, a new land, with a new people, and a new blessing for a new world, Abraham knew. Abraham knew that there was a barrier, that the last guy who did this left between us and God. Let me put it this way. Between God's redemptive plan taking place and all of his promises coming true in Abraham, there is an iron curtain of death that came by the way of the previous guy, Adam, that separates us from the pouring out of God's blessing. Abraham had that in his mind because he knew God, and he walked with God, and he was a prophet. So when God says to Abraham at the end, take your son, your only son, and offer him up as an offering. Put him to death. As uncomfortable as Abraham was with that, as confused as he was with that, one thing he knew, of course, the death barrier has to be broken. And if Isaac is the child of promise, maybe God will raise the dead later. Abraham knew what this was about. Somebody had to die. Okay, now, he has the knife. It's lifted up. A voice cries out, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. And he looks, and here on the mountain of Moriah is a lamb to sacrifice in place of the boy. Here's the end of the show. <clears throat> On this very mountain, the mountain of Moriah, years later, King Solomon builds a temple where generations of generations sacrifice lambs to die in the place of the people, the new humanity, the ones that we're supposed to cultivate, the ones that were supposed to rule, that we're supposed to be priests, that we're supposed to live in God's kingdom. Lambs sacrificed in their place. The death barrier had to be broken. But a lamb is not a man. Until Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, in the land of Moriah, the mountain outside the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, was lifted up on an altar of a cross to die in place of God's people instead of Isaac, instead of Abraham, instead of you, and instead of me. And really, that's the climax of Abraham's story. That's the whole thing. After this, it's just resolution. So here in the last moment of the sermon, I wanna invite you. Think about the ways that God has tested your own faith. Put you through hard times to show you where your assurance lies. And think about the times where you have sought to grab a hold of God's blessing for yourself your own way. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Now turn the eyes of your hearts and your minds and imaginations to the place that you didn't see it coming and gaze upon Jesus, the Lamb of God. Lift it up instead of you.